In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about what it means to actually survive in breast cancer survivorship. I'm talking about how to go on living after diagnosis. And for some, after treatment has ended and you're handed back your life, at least you think they hand you back your life, you're declared no evidence of disease and told to go live. In reality, you're handed a whole new life, one that is wholly unrecognizable, littered with the rubble of your pre-diagnosis existence. And all the while, friends and family are cheering for you for closing that chapter on cancer. But what if all you want to do is get in bed and never get out again? What if your worst fear is coming true? What if you aren't the, quote, strongest person they know? What if you aren't really the badass cancer warrior they thought you were? What if you're actually weak and a burden? Today, we're going to talk about a subject that's hard. This is a good place to warn you that we're going to talk about suicidal ideation. So if you have little ears around or you're sensitive to this subject, fair warning. On the other hand, this might be the most important episode you hear, the one that hits you in the place where you thought you were the only one. Maybe this is the episode you share with friends and family who are trying to understand why your post-treatment life isn't one big, happy, nonstop celebration. My guest today is Jen Rosenbaum. Jen is a portrait photographer and an author. She was diagnosed at 41 with stage 2B hormone-positive lobular breast cancer. Today, Jen's here to read a piece she wrote for Wildfire Magazine's Grief and Acceptance Issue. This was an issue in which we explored all the things cancer takes from us, how we grieve them, and how we go on afterward. Today's story is ultimately one woman asking the difference between being alive and feeling alive. Welcome to The Burn, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm already feeling emotional just from your intro. (laughs) I know it. Me too. So you are reading a piece that you wrote called The Search to Feel Alive. After you read, we'll come back and talk about it. And for those of you listening, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Jen, I'll let you read. When I think about grief and breast cancer, the most obvious connect I might make is the loss of my breasts, or when I lost 30% of my hair through chemotherapy, or when I felt my femininity slip through my fingers. I grieved all of these, and I grieved them heavily. Sometimes I still do. But that's not what I want to write about. What I want to share with you today is something I grieved that was unexpected, something no one told me I would miss, something that was gone in an instant but took me months to realize it was missing, normalcy. I missed my old life. I missed the old me, the woman who didn't think about cancer every day, the life that didn't revolve around surgeries and shots and pinktober, 
the carefree person who didn't freak out about every ache, every pain, wondering if my cough is allergies or worse. When I was first diagnosed with cancer, I assumed that the surgeries and treatment would be the hardest part of the process. When I finished chemotherapy in December of 2017, I couldn't wait for 2018 to roll in. I figured I was finishing the hard part and 2018 was going to be my year. I was determined to get my life back and go back to normal. What no one told me was that I was wrong. In fact, I was going to get worse before it got better. As much as I wrongly assumed 2018 would bring me some normalcy, so did everyone else in my life. I was thrown back into carpools, school lunches, work, and all the other responsibilities at home and in life. I didn't complain. In fact, I loved it. I was finally able to do the things that I cherished. The truth is, though, I felt off. I felt like I was living in someone else's life. The things that were important before cancer were now more important, and the things that weren't important were even less so. I felt disengaged, disassociated. I felt as if I was watching my life from the outside. Everything felt blurry. I had a hard time making seemingly innocuous decisions. I felt like I was walking through mud at all times, heavy, confused. There was no joy. When I finally had the guts to express to someone that I didn't feel right, I heard, at least you're alive, and if I were you, I would be celebrating. This only made me feel shameful. How dare I get a second chance at life and not appreciate it and make the most of it? Is it possible I'm not the warrior I touted myself to be for the months prior? On a cloudy day, mid-January 2018, I worked in the morning. I'm a photographer, and I had a shoot that day. I felt so disengaged with the subject through the entire shoot. I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. All I could think about was going home and crawling under the blankets. I did just that. I crawled into bed, and I cried for hours. I was in and out of sleep. When I was sleeping, it was my body's way of relieving me from the pain. When I was awake, all I could think of was that my family didn't deserve this. They shouldn't have to live with cancer and all the fear that it brings. My children shouldn't have to watch me suffer and be weak. This isn't the life I wanted for them or for me. And then I heard the thought, the one that said, do them a favor and end your life. The voice told me that I didn't have to suffer. If I ended my life, I wouldn't be sad anymore. I wouldn't have to face a life without breasts. The thoughts continued and got darker as time went on. To this day, I'm grateful to the other part of my brain that popped in and said to me, Jen, this isn't rational. Please do something. Reach out to someone. Don't do it. I dragged myself to the phone and I called my oncologist. I explained to her what was going on and she immediately took me off of tamoxifen, explaining that the medication might be contributing to or compounding the issues. She was right. I felt better when I wasn't on it, but it wasn't the solution. The feeling still existed. There was only one explanation why. I realized that there is a huge difference between being alive and feeling alive. How was I going to, once again, feel alive? It wasn't an overnight change, but I knew I needed to take action to start feeling differently. I started with signing up for Muay Thai, which is Thai kickboxing. For me, that would serve many purposes. It would rebuild my strength, help me get back into shape, and challenge me mentally. Every time I punched or kicked the pads or someone kicked me, I felt it reverberate through my whole body. Sometimes I wanted to cry. I could barely even hold the pads at the start of the class because my shoulders and the range of motion were so impacted. But I kept showing up day after day, punch after punch. Muay Thai started a chain reaction for me. I realized when I was there, I felt again. Even though sometimes it was pain, it was something. I wanted to feel more. Where else could I cleanse my emotions and replace grief with joy? 
Next, I cleaned out my closet. I got rid of all the things that reminded me of my old breasts. Bathing suits that no longer fit, bras I would never wear again, shirts that didn't flatter me. I cried, bald in fact. Parting with these items was parting with the old me, and I grieved her. After that, I started really cleaning up my life, adding in more of what made me feel alive and quickly getting rid of anyone or anything that made me feel anything otherwise. I traveled more. I guiltlessly indulged in more me time and self-care. I set boundaries in my relationships. And lastly, I confronted the demons in my marriage. All of these actions led me through the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, and depression were all emotions I had to experience to get to the last stage, acceptance. Grief is a process and not a linear one. I'm writing about my experience in under 1,500 words, but the truth is it's been a journey of almost four years so far, and I'm sure there is more work to do. Working through grief is not easy to do. It's ugly, painful, and at times riddled with depression and anxiety. It's easier in the moment to avoid the work, but long-term, it's been the greatest gift I've ever been given. I still have moments of sadness and nostalgia for my old life. I wouldn't be human if I didn't. Sometimes I think to myself, I still wish I was never touched by cancer, but the truth is I'm not sure I really feel that way now. Because of cancer, I'm a totally different person. I'm more present, I'm happier, I'm grateful, and I am loads more badass. I love who I am now, and I know myself so much more than I ever have in the past because I've given myself the space and permission to process my grief. I have a chance of a new life now, one in which I'm not just living, but in which I feel alive. Mm, That was so powerful, Jen. Thank you so much for reading such a vulnerable story. Thank you. <laughs> I always have to feel like I, I don't breathe when I read it. I know. I'm, I think I was holding my breath too. Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll let you catch your breath. Um, maybe wipe some tears. I know I need to wipe some tears. And when we come back, we'll chat some more about this quest to feel alive. Hi, I'm Becky. I'm from Ontario, Canada. And I was diagnosed with stage two triple negative breast cancer at the age of 38. I've tried so many things to help me cope with and make sense of my cancer diagnosis, but nothing compares to putting my story down on paper and sharing it with the wildfire community. As a parent of young kids, your plate is already full with diapers, bedtime, preschool drop-offs, or getting food on the table. When you top it off with an unwelcome cancer diagnosis, that already full plate can simply overflow. Brightspot Network is here to help. We are a community of parents and primary caregivers with cancer who are also raising young kids. We're doing that difficult work of parenting and caregiving all while navigating a cancer diagnosis and treatment. Brightspot Network offers free kids books on big emotions, cancer, grief, and loss. Free art boxes designed with kids of parents with cancer in mind. Financial grants for families impacted by cancer. Support groups for parents and partners, web resources, and more. Check us out at www.brightspotnetwork.org. Welcome back. Thank you so much to Brightspot Network for their support of this podcast. Do check them out, especially if you are parenting little ones alongside finding your way through breast cancer like I was. We will link to them in the show notes. All right, Jen, thank you again for your powerful writing. I think we are starting to talk about the mental health side, especially anxiety and depression that comes after a cancer diagnosis and treatment. 
But we aren't talking a lot about suicidal ideation. And so first, I just want to start by saying a big thank you to you for being willing to go there and go into such a, a place. So thank you for that. Thank you for giving me a space to do so and creating a platform where um, women can know that they're not alone. Yeah, I think it's really important because you do think you're alone in that. So let's, I want to start with um, some of the comments that you, you wrote about that you were receiving from well-meaning outsiders. You know, the ones who said, at least you are alive, you should be celebrating. I know they mean well. I'm, well, let's say this. At best, I think they mean well. At worst, they're really confused. They don't know why you don't feel the way they think you should feel, right? So yeah. I think that comments like that, unfortunately, lead to us feeling really isolated and it minimizes those feelings. Tell me more about how that how that made you feel in that in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, you know, when people would say, you're good now, right? You're done. And I would say, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Because I thought I was, you know, I, yeah. I wanted to be, let's put it that way. I really wanted to be. Um, and I just remember thinking, I, I just, I need to tell somebody the truth. I need to tell somebody I'm not good because I'm not good. And I felt this internal shame of why don't I feel good? I just kicked cancer in the butt. Why did I feel good when I was going through chemotherapy about it? And I don't feel good now. I don't understand so I didn't really understand. And then when I eventually started saying to people, yeah, I'm okay, not so much, <laughs> you know, uh, came all of the comments, you should, you know, you should be happy you're alive. I got the comments like, oh, you're going to be the one that runs the marathon. You're going to be, I know you, you know, and there's like this pressure, I think from, you know, I don't really know where it comes from. Is it social media? Is it the media? Is it this, um, you know, ideal cancer patient that we've made up that beats cancer and now is stronger than ever. And, you know, strength doesn't always look like marathons and writing books and, you know, wearing the Wonder Woman t-shirt. Sometimes strength looks like just getting up every day and putting your clothes on and functioning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like one foot in front of the other. But it doesn't quite fit the narrative, like you said, of that that cancer warrior that that it we are told. And I think it's all wrapped up in this idea that breast cancer is the the girly, sexy, kind of easy cancer somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And listen, I, I have fallen into that a little bit, right? I wrote a book. Everyone's like, you should write you a did. book. Okay, yeah. I'll write a book. Um, I have a podcast about it also. I have an Instagram page where I share a lot of my photos. You know, I have fallen into that a bit as well. Let me show you what it, life after cancer is like, and I'm going to show you smiles and strength. And But I also show tears and bruises mm -hmm. and, you know, drains and express myself through, let's say, like my YouTube channel where I do a video and I'm crying and I don't even care if it's an ugly cry, you know, because the truth is that um, none of this is linear. None of it is one dimensional. Everything comes with an alternative feeling. And I, and I say that you can feel the harder feelings like depression, anxiety, sadness, mourning, and still feel joyful and happy at times. They don't, they're not always separated, you know? No. I, and I love that you're mentioning that because I think it is hard to realize that you can be all of these things at one time. And that, 
maybe as part of that um, puzzle about actually feeling alive is letting yourself feel all of those emotions and realizing that other people are experiencing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was alive. I was happy to be alive, but I did not feel alive. Right. You know, I really felt um, empty mm-hmm. and confused. And, um, you know, I think it confuses other people too, because we have these emotions, but we do have these pockets of joy where the things that bring us happiness. And so other people also don't really know like what's happening. She looks happy. She seems happy. Right. Exactly. Well, and I think too, that you're, you, I don't know, we have this idea that you get diagnosed with cancer and then you're delivered this big mission in life. You have all this enlightenment and you're going to, you know, embrace every day and live every day, but it doesn't arrive like that. It, I mean, if it, if it arrives at all for some people, right? Like it's, you're still, you're still a human being. You're not somehow superhuman and you have all the answers, but sometimes it does also make you realize that the stuff that worked before, the stuff that brought joy before the relationships, et cetera, maybe aren't cutting it anymore. And that's really scary. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm going through a divorce right now. I talk Mm. about facing the demons in my marriage. So I'm just about five years out, about four and a half years out from my diagnosis. And I'm still working on putting my life back together and cleaning out my life and making it look like what I want it to look like. And it's hard work. And by the way, it's way harder than chemo and surgeries and all of that other stuff. This work is so much harder than that. Um, So there's that also. It's like, you know, you can't just flip a switch and then be okay. It takes time to find the new normal, understand what you want. Um, you know, the other thing is people say to me all the time, you know, you beat cancer, you could do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, when I'm struggling through my divorce, I say, what do you mean? You beat cancer. You could do this. And I'm like, okay, here's like the factor that you're not thinking about. I didn't have a choice, right? right? I didn't have a choice, but to beat cancer. Okay. My other choice was not a desirable one. So what was I supposed to do? Or when people say, oh, I, if I was diagnosed with cancer, I would just curl up in a corner and shrivel up. No, you wouldn't because that's not how the body works. The body puts us and the mind puts us into survival mode and we do become those warriors. But it's also sort of a, I don't want to say women aren't strong or whatnot, but it's almost a false sense of strength, right? Like if your mm-hmm. child, God forbid, was stuck under a car, trust me, you'll find the adrenaline to flip that car over. Mm-hmm. But if you have to walk into my driveway right now and flip my car over, there's no way you can do it, right? So it's the same thing. You know, when we're going through the process, we're, we are strong. We are so much stronger. How do we absorb some of that from when we're going through the process to fulfill our lives after the process is over? Yes. And I can't help but think that some of it has to do with we have a team who is assigned to us, who helps us through treatment, you know, who have been through medical school, know what, you know, different things to try in this scenario. It's not new to them. Whereas for us on the other side of it, we're in a brand new situation trying to put these pieces back together. No one's there saying, oh, that piece goes there and that piece goes there. And maybe like, you know, throw out that marriage. It's not working anymore. Like, you know, like you have to figure all that out yourself as well as the how-to, it's really hard. It, it, it really, yeah, cancer doesn't come with all the answers. <laughs> no, and honestly, not even when you're in treatment, right? Because we're all exactly. just guinea pigs. We don't really have the answers to any of this. Exactly. 
So I want to come back to one moment in your story when you, um, you describe picking up that phone and calling for help and calling your oncologist. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I think that can be the hardest part is number one, realizing that you maybe need help because when you're in it, you sometimes just think, okay, this is my life now, you know, this is it. But number two, being able to say the words to being able to say something isn't right here. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. I'm feeling a little emotional Mm -hmm. about it. You know, I just really vividly remember that I couldn't tell if I was giving my kids a gift by being here or not being here. And that was the thought that just kept circulating in my head. Am I a better mother if I don't put them through this? Or am I a better mother if I'm here for them, even though we're going through this and they see me this way? And I didn't have an answer. And that really scared me because, you know, when you see, I remember, for example, like when, um, you know, when certain celebrities commit suicide and they talk about their children how could they do that to their children? How could people do that to their families? I was probably one of those people that had that judgment, right? How, how could you do that? People love you. But I understood it in that moment. I understood that maybe doing that would, would save my children from a lifetime of cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard. It was really hard to admit that I was really that low and I had you know, I am really, really good at self deprecation and, you know, putting the guilt on myself and thinking, how did I let it get this far so fast? How, why am I not taking care of this? What's ha-? you know, there's all the guilt and the shame and everything else on top of it. Who do I ask for help that won't judge me? Who, you know, will hold their hand out? And so, you know, I decided it was my oncologist because I figured she was the only one that might say to me, okay, this is normal hang tight. Let's see what we can do about this. You know, it wasn't even my therapist or my best friend or anything like that. It was like, okay, I just need to figure out, uh, if, if the medication is causing this, if this is actually logical. Um, and when she said to me, look, the tamoxifen could be adding to this. I sort of decided in that moment in my mind, okay, this is the tamoxifen. So we're going to stop the tamoxifen and this is going to, you know, end. and it didn't, it did get better. Like I said, it didn't stop the thoughts, but, um, you know, when I was di- I'm just going to step back for one minute. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I remember my best friend said to me, the hardest thing about this journey is going to be you asking for help because you're not good at that. Wow. And, you know, she was right. But I knew in that moment, if I don't ask for help, like I can't do this alone. I can't. Somebody needs to take care of this for me because I can't do it. Mm. I'm so glad that she told you that. That's powerful. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I'm really glad that you reached out to your oncologist um, because I think that part of this is we wonder like, who's the right person for this question, but really you just need to start asking the question. And then, you know, if that, if that's not their, their realm, maybe they'll point you to the person that it is, or maybe it's a nurse navigator who can say, okay, Mm -hmm. let's try this or that, but it's like, open your mouth and, and ask the question. And the more you ask it, the easier it gets. It's going to be the harder, the hardest part will be the first time you ask the question. Yeah. And, you know, I find that in my life now, I mean, like I said, I'm going through this divorce and it's really, really difficult. And um, I'm definitely 
suffering from some depression based on that and some other things that are going on. I mean, it's the pandemic and it's winter in New York and it's miserable here. And it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things going on with my kids and whatnot. So there's a lot, I have a lot that I'm carrying right now, but this time I was smart enough to say, you know what, before this starts going down the slippery slope, let's do something about it. Let's seek out therapy or, you know, whatever it might be, because I recognized it. And that is, that is how cancer does turn you into that warrior and that strong person because you take the lessons that you learned from such a hard experience and you don't let it happen again, you know, or you, you translate it into your life after cancer. And those are the subtle things that are not running marathons. They're not, you know, but, but they are just as big of an accomplishment, I think. Oh, I think so too. And especially when you can tell others about those lessons learned, like, okay, here's what I really learned about cancer, you know, and then it's learning when to ask help. It's learning to put in place those safety nets. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, nothing is permanent. That's the other thing. Somebody asked me recently, is there ever a day that goes by that you don't think about cancer? And I said, no, no, Why, how, how could, it, that's never going to be possible again, you know, that's never going to be possible. But the truth of the matter is that it's gotten less severe, less intense, less raw over time. And, you know, I just want to let people know that, that sometimes, you know, we go through hard things, but they're never permanent. No feeling is permanent. Yes. And that reminds me so much of just grief in general. And I think that's a lot of what what this is, is going through this grieving process for the life that you had before and then grieving the fact that you even have to build a new life. And you're right. It doesn't go away, but just like grieving the passing of a loved one, you never stop thinking about them and you never stop wishing they were here or hurting about that, but it shifts. It's not as acute, you know, as you move through it. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, the difference is between grief often that we go through when we lose a loved one and grief like this is that we have emotional and physical, um, I don't know what the word is and I'm looking for because I'm having a chemo brain moment, but there's a, there's a breakdown almost, right? Like for me, yeah, I finished chemo at the end of 2017, but since then I've had five surgeries. So as I'm, for example, going through a divorce and things are difficult, now I'm facing these surgeries on my own, mm-hmm. where before I had somebody in the house with me to at least help with the children or whatnot. Now I'm doing it on my own. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to this. It's just not black and white. There's, there's so much. So there's a grief involved in that too. Like, yeah. oh, now we're talking about dating after breast cancer and I don't have breasts. How is that going to work? Or, you know, what if I get sick again? Am I, am I willing to let go of my marriage, even though I know it's not good for me? What about my health insurance? What about, you know, making sure somebody might be there in case, God forbid, I get sick again? So there's, there's a lot of complicated things that go on and we're tired emotionally, we're tired physically from all the surgeries and the, you know, it's, it's exhausting sometimes. And I think even just that lends itself to some sadness and um, feeling overwhelmed. So that's why the community and, and everything you're doing also, April, is so amazing because it's so good for another survivor or thriver to say to somebody, no, it's okay. Hang in there. It's going to get better. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, and let's bring it to your work. Um, you mentioned, you know, obviously we know you're a photographer, um, phenomenal photographer, but you've also written a book and you've also started a podcast. So can you talk a little bit about that decision to kind of stay in a cancery space with your work and what, what ultimately you want to give back? Yeah. You know, <clears throat> the exchange of energy when I photograph a breast cancer patient, survivor, thriver, is amazing. I remember when I was having chemo, the first time I ever photographed somebody who had breast cancer, I was having chemo at the time, and I photographed her. She was flat by choice. Well, I shouldn't say by choice. She was having a lot of infection. She had to go flat, but it was uh, you know, a choice not to uh, try anything else, uh, any other type of reconstruction. She was just so amazing, and I photographed her, and she just inspired me so much. And at the end of the day, I turned to my makeup artist and I said, my God, I just want to be like her. She's so strong. She's so inspirational. She's so beautiful. And my makeup artist kind of tilted her head to the side and looked at me and said, that's how we see you. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, now I understand what's happening here. So in my moments of weakness and feeling sad, and and then I work with somebody who I can see their power. I can see in women that I photograph that don't have breasts how feminine they are and how strong they are. It reminds me, my femininity is not wrapped up in my breasts. I'm still feminine. I'm still strong. Um, when I turn the camera on myself, even because I do a lot of selfies, it's a healing tool. You know, it allows me to see myself through a different lens, no pun intended, because, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror or you just see, um, all the, the, the quote unquote bad, right. The scars and the bruises and the asymmetry and the rippling and, you know, whatever else it might be. When I take photos of myself or I paint myself or I dress up in lingerie or whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm creating sort of what I feel on the inside. And so it looks different from the outside. Um, so it's been a really good tool of healing for me, the photography. Um, you know, it's interesting on that topic. Um, you know, I had tattooed nipples. Um, you know, I have reconstruction, but I didn't, I couldn't keep my nipples. So I have tattooed nipples, but it took me a long time to get there for that. And it was very emotional. I spent the whole day crying the day before. And that's like another thing, right? We all, I don't know about you, but the minute I was diagnosed, everybody started sending me that uh, video from Vinnie Myers and he tattoos nipples and look at how amazing it is. And and I was like, I can't wait till I get to that day, right? And then the day was there, and I was like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, it was like so emotional. Um, you know, I don't know if there's, I, I don't personally feel that there's a comparison within the community. I think it's very, ex, you know, accepting of each other. Um, I, I do think though that it's like, how do you make that decision of what you want to do? Whether it's reconstruction, nipples, tattoos. Um, you know, flat. It's it's that may be a very interesting conversation because I think, um, you know, for me when I was diagnosed, I went in and I said, okay, well, they said, okay, you're gonna have a mastectomy and reconstruction with implants, and I said, okay, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know or think about it. It was just like, okay, well, that's what's done, and that's what I'm gonna do. It's interesting too, because I think, you know, on the one hand, you have your doctor saying, this is what you need to do. Like in what you experienced, you didn't even know there were other options, but then you also, you know, describing friends and family, sending the videos of, you know, tattoo and everything. It's almost like friends and family also want to say, okay, here's what you should do. Like I saw this rad thing. This will make you feel whole. And it's, it's so hard. Like you think there's one way to do it, but there's like 5,000 ways to do breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I will say that boob envy is a real deal, you know, not within the community, but from within the community to without, without the community. But you know what I mean? Especially for me as a boudoir photographer, I'm, I'm always, sh- you know, shooting women in lingerie. I don't only work with breast cancer patients. So when I'm photographing a woman who is whole and she starts with like, Oh, my body. And I want to be like, bitch, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Really? Okay, so your boobs are a little saggy. At least you have boobs. At least you have nipples. At least you have sensation. So I've had to really learn to say to myself, well, those women, their feelings about their body are legit and are real and have nothing to do with what's going on with me and my body. But damn, I wish I had their breasts. You know, like I, I, they don't know what they're missing, you know, that kind of a thing. So um, that the boob envy is definitely real. I will second that. The So I'm half flat. And the first time I was watching TV after my uh, surgery and I saw cleavage, oh. a huge breakdown. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was trading in cleavage. What the heck? Right. Yeah. You know what? I miss my own cleavage. When I see a picture of myself, like, you know, I have a little cleavage now, but it's like down here. My cleavage was like, you know, all. And I, when I see pictures of myself now, I'm like, oh my God, I had such a good boobs. Like, what the heck? You know, it's like, yeah, you miss it. It's it's really part of so much a part of who you are. And that envy is definitely like we watch a movie and there's a topless girl. I'm like, I don't want to see. <laughs> so it's so weird. It's like the layers of identity. And you don't know when you go into this that you are taking on the identity of of a survivor and what that means. Yeah. And all the nuance. Writing the book and doing the podcast and all of that. Um, you know, I've decided to stay in the space, at least for now. Um, I, I never, I realize again, nothing is permanent. Um, but for now, because I think it gives my disease purpose and without purpose, it's just illness. And I don't want that in my life. I don't want illness. And for me, I think joy and feeling alive and recreating your life as hard as it is right now is the best medicine. It's stronger than any chemo, any radiation, anything is to create an environment around yourself that cultivates health and happiness within your cells and in your mind and in your heart. So if I can help any women do that, then I'm going to do that that's a responsibility as far as I'm concerned for me, not for everybody, but for me. Mm, I like that because I also think, and I've experienced this myself too, is that in helping others, you continue to add layers of help to yourself. And it just is a thing that's going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. You know, sometimes I, and by the way, I just want to say, I'm not implying people shouldn't have chemo or radiation, (laughs) but I'm just saying afterwards, uh, it's a very strong medicine. Um, you know, because I created so many videos for my YouTube channel, sometimes I go back and I watch them every now and again, just to remind myself where I was, because you know, what will happen sometimes, um, it'll pop up in my memories or something. Mm -hmm. And I'll, and I'll immediately think, look at that woman. She looks so young. She looks so skinny. <laughs> she looks so un- untethered by life, you know? In the meantime, I had just had a mastectomy, you know? Like, I, I, in, in that moment, I'm like in the thick of it, right? But sometimes I watch them to remind myself some of the emotions that I was feeling because we forget over time also. And I want to stay connected to some of those feelings. Even though they're difficult feelings, it's important to stay connected. It is. And I love the power of writing to help us do that. Um, because you know, I, as you were reading your story here today, I could hear the emotion in your voice. Like it brings you right back, which Mm -hmm. for some people would be 
maybe a reason not to write. Like, well, I don't know if I want to feel that, but I think any opportunity to to feel in touch with former iterations of ourselves is only going to serve us um, going forward. I agree. I mean, when I read that story, I can feel the feeling of the sheets against my skin, you know, laying in bed. I remember I was literally under the covers, like it was over my head. It's not me. It's not who I am. It was just, I just wanted nothing to do with the world. And I, I can feel it when I talk about it. And the truth is, as difficult as it is, I don't want to disconnect from that feeling. I want to remember what that was like because I never, ever want to go back there again. And I also want to know if I do go back there, I recognize it right away and do something about it. Yes. Yes. And I can't help but think that someone listening to this is experiencing that exact thing. And this will be a helpful lifeline to to pull them out from under those covers. Oh. Jen, thank you so much. Will you tell us where we can find you and follow you online and all that good stuff? Of course. Um, if you want anything, Jen, you could just go to jenrosenbaum.com. It's spelled with a Z. Um, my Instagram is Jen Rosenbaum and my book is on Amazon. It's called What the F-U-C-K Just Happened. I don't know how PG your podcast is. Uh, <laughs> a Survivor's Guide to Life After Breast Cancer. But if you want to find it, you could just Google my name and it'll come up. I mean, uh, put my name in the Amazon search. It'll come up. Well, we can Google you also, right? <laughs> I just Googled myself the other day, by the way. Do you know like the number one thing that people search for that it pops up as the auto Google is, is Jen Rosemount married? The second one is Jen Rosemount's husband. I'm like, really? You guys are very nosy. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I love it. Jen, will you tell us the name of your podcast as well and where we can find that? Yeah, sure. It's called Life After Breast Cancer with Jen Rosenbaum. And it is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and probably a whole a lot of other places that I don't know about. <laughs> so anywhere that you listen to podcasts, check it out. Definitely. We'll link to that for sure. Well, thanks again, Jen. Thank you so much for being here. My writer and guest today was Jen Rosenbaum. Her piece was called The Search to Feel Alive from the April-May 2021 issue of Wildfire called Grief and Acceptance. I am April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Jen. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Harrow. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 30 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. And please leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing the stories they need. Finally, here's today's writing prompt. I want to encourage you to write your unique stories, to write the story that you're not hearing out there in the world that you need. I want you to write your story and think about submitting it to Wildfire Magazine. So I want you to set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. This prompt is, the story I need to tell is. The story I need to tell is. And I want you to think about why it is painful, why it is joyful, what is universal about it, and what you've learned. So eight minutes, write without stopping. See what needs to come out, where it will take you. 
happy writing. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take good care.